Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. Coming up, the cost of inaction on human-induced climate change. The bill will come due and will be settled in lives and livelihood. The British medical journal The Lancet tries to estimate the global bill and see who pays the most. And one of the cruel paradoxes in this that is relevant to public health and climate change is that those at the forefront of climate impacts are rarely those that have contributed to the problem. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A rare and often fatal disease is making headlines around the world due to a new success story that involves genetically modified stem cells. The disease is epidermolysis bullosa. Let's just call it EB. EB makes skin tear at the slightest touch. It's caused by genetic mutations in the proteins that normally anchor the outer layer of skin to the underlying layers. The resulting tears are like second-degree burns, increasing deadly skin infections and skin cancer. To save more EB patients, researchers in Italy have been modifying a common treatment for burns. For burn patients, specialists grow sheets of skin from the patient's own skin cells, then graft these sheets over the burns. For EB, the Italian team replaced the patient's mutated EB gene with a normal anchor protein gene, and then they grew the skin sheets. Clinical trials for this were underway when German doctors made an urgent request. A young EB patient had almost no healthy skin. Skin infections were leaving him near death. The Italian team took skin cells from the dying boy. They inserted a normal anchor gene, then grew a skin sheet of his cells. When the sheet was over a foot square, they transplanted it onto the boy, and it worked. Within a month, healthy skin covered most of his body. That was two years ago. He still got healthy skin. This result is clearly important for sufferers of EB. It may also lead to better treatments for other genetic disorders. In the local science calendar, this Saturday morning, the popular CU Wizards program will feature Superheroes Within, Immunity and Health and Disease. CU Wizard Talks take place in CU Boulder's Crystal Chemistry and Biochemistry Lecture Hall. Saturday's talk starts at 9.30 in the morning. And how about this? While no constellation represents a turkey, autumn offers some of the year's best stargazing. Nights are often crystal clear, yet not as cold as winter. That's why this Sunday, you can join Boulder Open Space and Mountain Park's naturalist Dave Sutherland for a Thanksgiving star party at the Sage Trailhead at Boulder Valley Ranch. Sunday's star party will include a chance to look through a powerful telescope at the stars and ask Dave Sutherland starry questions. Sunday's star party starts at 7. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life we're only waiting for this moment to arise. You're tuned to How on Earth. It's the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Respectable science journals no longer debate whether human activity causes climate change or even if it can be reversed to prevent human suffering. They now scramble to figure out what will be the cost and who will pay. The bill will be payable in lost lives and livelihoods. The British medical journal The Lancet assembled an interdisciplinary team of scientists to help tally this enormous global bill. 
On October 30th, they released the 2017 Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change. The report concludes that the delayed response to climate change over the past 25 years has already jeopardized human lives and livelihoods, and the impacts must be assessed in terms of global public health. One of the contributors to that report is local climate scientist Max Boykoff, a fellow at Ceres here in Boulder, where he is director of the Center for Science and Technical Policy Research. As the next round of Global Climate Talks, COP23, are already convening in Bonn, Germany, Max Boykoff stopped by the KGNU studios to speak with Chip Grandens about the implications of the report. Here's their conversation. It's a bold report. However, uh, given the state of our understanding of these issues, it still remains fairly conservative. I mean, it is an assessment of the state of our understanding of these issues. Even that, when put together on this kind of a scale, put together in this report published in The Lancet, provides a pretty stark warning on this on where things are now. What are some of the admonitions, some of the warnings that come from this report? Well, I mean, the report has talked about how human symptoms of climate change are unequivocal and potentially irreversible that affect health of populations around the world today that these effects will disproportionately impact the most vulnerable in society, although every community will be affected. I mean, one of the cruel paradoxes in this that is relevant to public health and climate change is that those at the forefront of climate impacts are rarely those that have contributed to the problem. And so this report helps to raise awareness of those that will be differentially impacted. Uh, In addition, the delayed response over climate change in the policy arena has been called out in this report over the past few decades is jeopardizing clearly human lives and livelihoods. Uh, this, is, this report has pointed out that voices of health professionals are essential in driving forward progress on climate change and achieving health benefits of this response going into the future. And so seats at the table with health professionals and others that work on public health are critically important. But while progress has been slow, this report also points out that the last five years have actually shown an accelerated response. So there has been an encouraging set of observations that are noted here that there is a transition to low carbon electricity generation, addressing energy access, addressing climate change, that suggests that we are on the precipice of what could be a broader transformation going forward. There's a specific goal, I I believe, that came out of the Paris Climate Accords about keeping the carbon emissions low to prevent a change in global temperature. Where do we stand with respect to that? Because I understand in some ways that is the most large-scale irreversible damage that can be done, is that if you don't lower the carbon emissions, the mean temperature of the Earth will go up and it'll have profound and lasting changes. Yes, that's absolutely correct. What's often held up as a two-degree temperature target to keep global temperatures from rising above two degrees. And that's centigrade, we're in. Centigrade, I'm sorry, relative to pre-industrial levels. So that's 3.6 to 4 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, roughly. And that is in some ways arbitrary, but over time, I mean, we get into the history of how that developed, how that became articulated as a target to avoid. That's not to say that everything's great until we reach that 3.6 degree Fahrenheit temperature target, and then everything goes goes crazy after that. We are on a spectrum. We've already been experiencing climate impacts. This report points to some of those critical impacts in vulnerable populations around the world. 
But that two degree temperature target, two degrees Celsius, has really been focused on a way to then track back from that large scale goal as to what needs to be done in the interim. Now that two degree temperature target, two degrees Celsius, is not universally accepted by any means. For instance, there is an alliance of small island states that are also collectively at the forefront of climate impacts, particularly as it relates to sea level rise and storm surge. And they have said and developed a slogan that says 1.5 to stay alive. And so there has been this important movement to increase urgency, uh, also increase our levels of commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere through mitigation practices to then stem the tide and not go past 1.5 degrees Celsius. So interestingly, right now, there is a meeting that's convened in Bonn, Germany, the next climate negotiations that's co-hosted, not by just by the German government, but also by the Fijian government. And they have taken a key role and increased the visibility of these alliances of small island states. So it will be an opportunity to increase that voice for greater engagement focused in on that temperature target. It's interesting to note when I think about some of the resistance to uh, addressing, taking action on climate change, the the resistance that I've heard in the the United States, there are some outright deniers of climate change uh, still sitting in the U.S. Senate. But there are some uh, conservative intellectuals who have said, you know, maybe this climate change is anthropogenic, this human-induced climate change is real. But in fact, we here in the United States in the advanced industrialized world, we're in our post-industrial era and the largest centers of population in the globe, China and India respectively, they're entering their industrial era. So no matter what we would do to lower our carbon emissions and and our producing of greenhouse gases, as countries like China and India want to do what America did, but with like a 40 or 50 year lag, their uh, additional contributions to greenhouse gases, to emissions, will dwarf whatever reductions we do. What do you say to someone who brings an argument like that? Well, I think that that, those are all valid points. Uh, And that kind of north-south dialogue or disagreement has lurked in these negotiations since they began, before climate became an issue, really, starting with, in the 1970s, the 1972 Stockholm agreement. And these are the sorts of questions around rights and responsibilities that tend to pervade all kinds of discussions about who's responsible, who should be taking action. To me and to many others who have followed this, I've been a student of this now for quite some time and have now been involved in, in uh, as an observer in these climate negotiations on five different occasions. And having been a part of all of this, it's clear that this is a collective action challenge. And so the kinds of naming and shaming that takes place sometimes within uh, political actors here in the United States really overlooks that we need collective action and coherent action. So the Paris Agreement is, is a fabric or maybe an artifact of that collective action. The state of play right now is that every nation on the planet within the United, within the United Nations is committed to the Paris Agreement. That includes the United States. The United States, even despite the Trump administration claims, has to go through a process that at the very earliest could back the United States out of the agreement by the 4th of November 2020, around the time, actually, incidentally, of the next presidential election. And with 
the last two holdouts, Nicaragua and Syria, for very different reasons, having just joined in the last weeks in Syria just a few days ago, literally every nation has agreed that we need to collectively take action on this. And so the kind of issues that you raise are certainly relevant and certainly pervade the discussions of what are the levels of commitment and what, how can we build an architecture to address climate mitigation is just a part of it and climate adaptation and helping to leapfrog over polluting technologies into a cleaner energy future is another piece of this. But it is all within the confines of firm commitments. Well, that brings up another issue, which is the vast scope of what this Lancet countdown effort is going to do. As the title implied, this starts with the issue of climate change and draws it to public health. But there are, in fact, many other disciplines in between that the Lancet has drawn experts from. Uh, I guess there's economists, there's doctors, there's mathematicians. Tell me about the array of contributors to this report. It's really, um, it's been a pleasure. I've, I've learned a lot by being a part of one of these large collaborations, as we all do, and we, we contribute our parts. Uh, but just as you said, there have been people across the academic spectrum that have been able to contribute to pieces of this, uh, really well led by Nick Watts, by uh, others based in London, but a coordination across um, 24 different institutions. And it really speaks to the way in which climate change permeates every aspect of our life lives and livelihoods, the way that we live, work, play, get around, relax in society. And the way in which we engage with that affects industrial activities, clearly, uh, big in industry actors, but also our lifestyles of household use of energy, uh, transportation, and agricultural practices. And so Lancet Countdown has done a very good job of pulling in these different actors to help build as comprehensive a look as possible on these issues. And I notice right in the word countdown that, that it's looking forward to a particular date in the future. And, and as we were talking before the interview, uh, this is a series of reports that's going to go forward to 2030. So what is the Lancet counting down to? And, and what is you know their teleological goal here? What are they driving towards? So the Lancet countdown is now committed to seeing this project through with uh, periodic updates through the period of time of the Paris Climate Agreement at this stage, so seeing it through to 2030. And so helping to provide this perspective that influences policy actions, influences priorities, both within science and policy and society uh, going forward. And so just as an example, this morning only, um, not to date this interview necessarily, <laughs> uh, but just this morning, Lancet Countdown had a panel at the uh, Bonn Climate Talks. And so a policy-facing discussion that helps inform and enhance decision-making in this arena is, is what uh, Lancet Countdown is after. And so raising awareness is great, but a sustained commitment is very important. And so I'm really pleased to be a part of a group and part of a project that is sustaining their commitment out to 2030 at this stage. Good morning. This is Chip Granitz. You've been listening to my interview with climate scientist Max Boykoff, fellow at Ceres. He's talking about the 2017 Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change. The report was compiled by a staggering array of scientists from around the globe and from many different disciplines. The Lancet Countdown represents a vast and sustained global response to a vast and pervasive global problem. 
Max Boykoff was one of the contributors to the 2017 report, and now I turn the conversation to ask him about his own contributions. Uh, tell us a little bit now about what was your particular contribution to the report. So here at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, I've been working with a team on media monitoring of climate change and global warming for some time. And it's involved a set of uh, former graduate students, current graduate students, uh, and even undergrads, who we now on a monthly basis have tracked the prevalence of discussions of climate change or global warming at the global level in 52 different sources uh, in 28 countries now in three languages around the world. We scale this down to eight different countries as well and provide those country uh, looks, and we have it all available uh, on our website and open source the data for folks, other researchers to use. We had been approached a while back, and Megan Daly, who is a former PhD student here at the University of Colorado, who's now a fellow at Leeds University in the UK, she and I have worked with uh, Lancet Countdown to provide a subset of looking at these a number of sources, 18 different sources across the a number of different regions to look at climate change and global warming as it pairs with different dimensions of public health. So we developed a set of search terms and then it searched this over a period of time to help provide yet another input to understand how these public health dimensions are being addressed along with climate change through media representational practices. And what were some of your findings? I mean, what, what are some of your observations about how uh, the media in different countries and different areas has uh, characterized and addressed climate change? I think, you know, this, this is one input, and there was other work that was done looking at uh, public statements from political actors and such, but the bottom line is that this isn't being uh, addressed and connected up nearly as much as it should be. And that is, a, that is a value judgment. But given the scale of this challenge, uh, given the scale of the threat of climate change in the 21st century, the scale of response, the scale of discussion and, and um, articulation of these connections between climate change and public health has not met the challenge. So there is a lot more work that needs to be done to help media actors connect these dots and to help those that are working in the media and, and those that are working uh, in roles as political actors facing the public to be able to connect these up to develop policies to address them going forward. Because this is unfortunately an issue that's only going to grow in importance in the next years and decades. One of the sections on the report was about uh, developing resiliency to the changes uh, in climate. Even if we were to make uh, all, with all due diligence, all the recommendations, there still would be some impact and uh, countries and municipalities need to be prepared. Tell us a little bit about what, what it means for uh, a, a government or an agency uh, to be resilient to a potential impacts of climate change. Thank you. Yes, that draws into an important dimension of all this around climate adaptation and preparedness, that it isn't all about just reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That tends to get a lot of the attention in these negotiations. But a big and growing piece of it is about how do we build resilience? How do we address vulnerability to climate change and then protect ourselves? So in one way, when you think about mitigation, it's about protecting the climate and the environment from us and our practices. In this case, it's about protecting ourselves from climate biting back and from the agency and from 
uh, the kinds of impacts that we can see in terms of extreme events, in terms of heat waves and droughts, in terms of, uh, you know, all kinds of other ways that are indicators of, of these changes that are taking place that are attributed to human activities. And so that is uh, a big challenge that's being addressed at all levels, from neighborhoods to cities to regions to states to countries and then internationally. Uh, for instance, here in the city of Boulder, there is a strong push for resilience. There was uh, you know, a uh, big storm that came through in September 2013 that had raised awareness with, with everyday people about the um, importance of resilience at the community level. And to the extent that that has been connected to climate change is work that others are doing uh, here uh, in Boulder and in other places. But it is an example that helps sensitize the general public to resiliency more broadly. That climate change and human contributions to climate change is part of a conversation that is encased within larger discussions around sustainability and resiliency in the 21st century. Certainly one of the largest scale natural disasters that garners media attention here in the United States are, are hurricanes. And as, as many uh, climate change deniers point out, of course, hurricanes happened frequently long before uh, uh, humans affected the, uh, the atmosphere. Uh, but we did have a string of three pretty big ones this year, uh, uh, Harvey and Irma and Maria. Uh, what would you say about how uh, the United States and FEMA uh, reacted to, to Harvey and, and Irving and Maria? Did, did, did we here in the United States show resiliency and adaptation, or do we still have a ways to go, do you think? My short answer to that is we still have a ways to go. And what would be some recommendations for, for our country in particular then? Well, the National Climate Assessment, uh, the fourth report of the National Climate Assessment, it's a periodic review done at the national level that addresses uh, these kinds of issues around resilience and preparedness and many other issues has just come out with a report uh, within the last couple of weeks. And they put forward a set of recommendations. And, it, and in a lot of ways, it is about actually putting forward a lot, much more resources to these kinds of issues. And so that's where, you know, delves into the political arena as budgets are tightening in the very areas where they need to be strengthening. That is cause for concern. The ways in which uh, we as a federal government can react to and provide support for uh, these kinds of hurricane events afterwards is certainly one thing, but then to prepare for them ahead of time is another. And so on both those fronts, in recent budget reports and some of these ways in which it's being discussed in the Congress and from the Trump administration, this is certainly cuts to the heart of how prepared we will be going forward. I want to emphasize that uh, much in the report, was it's not all gloom and doom. There was definitely a metaphor about how we are uh, turning a corner, that in previous years we were going in the wrong direction, now we're going in a different direction and accelerating in that direction. Maybe uh, take a moment to talk about some of the some of the recommendations that were made in the initial 2015 report that, that progress has been made on, some of the things that have been done right. I appreciate you bringing that up because as this report has the tendency to point out some of the challenges that we face. We've also pointed out that the last five years have shown quite a bit of promise and that there is this accelerated transition to low carbon or no carbon energy sources, that there is this broader transformation that's taking place, 
that uh, GDP has been decoupled from CO2 emissions here in the United States and around the world, and that this points to a promising future when you look at, uh, evaluate this in the face of, of climate change. And so from the 2015 report, the larger group of collaborators, 63 collaborators, have pointed out that investments in climate change and public health research have proven to be very successful, that scaled-up financing for climate-resilient health systems as a recommendation is one that is that is gaining some momentum. That with human health concerns in mind, the increased awareness of coal-fired power and its impact on public health is generating discussions about the phasing out of coal-fired power plants. That place-based ways to reduce urban air pollution is increasing in the discussions that are taking place amongst policy actors. And very importantly, the one of the maybe blind spots in years past around energy access is one that is being increasingly addressed just in the interim the last few years. And by that I mean that there is a challenge that's involved here that trying to reduce climate change and at the same time increasing energy access to the nearly 2 billion people that don't have access to energy requires that we provide opportunities to access renewable energies rather than accessing what are polluting energies of coal, oil, natural gas. And so there has been a great deal of work that's been done to help that 2 billion, 2 billion plus part of our global community access renewable energy. And so these are some of the places where we can look to and try and build on those successes in the last few years to then continue to move towards this transformative space. That was Max Boykoff, director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research at CERES, the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. CERES is a joint venture of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and CU Boulder. I spoke with Max about the 2017 Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Chip Granditz.